The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Welcome to Park Church. Uh, my name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors here at Park. Um, thank you guys for being here. Uh, many of you I recognize from Park Church and others of you, um, this may be your first time to this neighborhood or to this church building, so thank you for being here. Um, it's, our, it's our pleasure to host this event uh, with Fellowship Denver and Hope in Our City, um, two partnering organizations um, that we, we love to serve with uh, here in the metro area. Um, like I said, my name's Neil. Um, I'll be walking us through tonight. We have a few different speakers, and we're going to have a chance for some Q&A um, along the way after each speaker. Uh, there is a phone number on the top of those half sheets that are in each of your spots. You can text a question to that number at any point. And we only have a handful of minutes after each speaker, so we'll try to get through at least two or three questions. But a lot of times we see recurring themes, and so we'll pull um, that particular question and, and ask that. So feel free to do that. Um, restrooms, men are on your right side, and ladies on your left. Um, many of you found the, the caffeine in the back. We have plenty of it, and more coming if we need it. Um, also, decaf coffee, water, lemonade, some snacks back there. Feel free to hop up if you can crawl your way through uh, the sea of chairs and, and get more during the event. Uh, we'll also have a couple breaks along the way, um, so feel free to grab those as well. Um, before we bring Hunter up here to give us a, a theological vision of refugees, uh, I just want to say why we care about this, why, why I care about uh, refugees uh, personally. I remember uh, as a kid there was a game, I think it was on Sesame Street, um, that went something to the effect of one of these is not like the other. You know what I'm talking about? Seeing the little jingle, and you're like looking at different images and different pictures, maybe people. And, and you're supposed to pick out what are the, the dissimilarities from one of these items or one of these people. And, and once you discover that and pick out what that is, then you, you've essentially won the game. Now, it's fun as a game. The trouble is we do this in real life now, without even trying. Uh, we pick out dissimilarities. We, we find our comfort zones. Um, and we have a lot of people in this city, in our neighborhoods, people that we, we rub shoulders with on a regular ba- basis that feel like that other, that feel like those people that, that don't quite f- fit in, that they don't quite have a home um, like the rest of us may feel. And, and it's not something that has to be said explicitly. It's not something that has to be named and identified um, outwardly. It, it's felt. It's felt through the looks, through language, through customs, through institutions. Uh, they just don't feel like this place is their own. And... And the amazing thing is, Paul reminds us in uh, Ephesians, second half of Ephesians chapter 2, that all of us, the, those who are, are in Christ, were once refugees. We're once those who are estranged from the people of God and the family of God. And instead of, of passively kind of sitting by and ignoring our, our plight and our situation, and, and, and certainly not intentionally deriding us and, and making us feel our exclusion, he sought us out. And he came and he initiated an engaged relationship with us. Uh, so that he could bring us into uh, his family, into relationship with him. And so the way that we, as his people, image him faithfully in the city is by finding those who, who don't feel um, a part of things, who, who do feel excluded um, in the, the institutional environment in this world, in our society. Um, and that's what we want to do faithfully. And so we partner with people like Hope in Our City, a relatively new organization here in the metro area who, who gives leadership to and helps local churches and Christians think well and to serve well in this area? How do we sacrificially lay down our lives for the good of those who it may not be easy for us to spend time with? And in asking the question, 
what would it be like if, if Christians and, and local churches throughout this city were known for stepping into those hard spaces, for engaging these kind of relationships, uh, for, for laying aside comfort and, and not sitting idly by, but, but stepping into places where we have to sacrifice something. Uh, it doesn't feel as easy. What would that do for the reputation of Jesus here in our city? When people hear uh, the name of Jesus Christ, what, what would they begin to think and, and imagine and wonder what he must be like and, and what his work uh, must be for? And so we, we hold events like these where we can think well, uh, but not just think well. We, we want that thinking to drive action, to drive activity. And so we're going to have opportunities along the way tonight uh, to hear about ways to, to plug in further and then um, specific opportunities uh, once, we, once we close up the evening. So... Hunter's going to start us out. Uh, Hunter Beaumont is the lead pastor of Fellowship Denver. Um, he's also the Rocky Mountain uh, Network Director um, for X29, the church network that we're part of, and a number of other churches across the Front Range, um, and a good friend to us on a personal level, on an institutional level. Um, he's been a gift to us again and again and again through his friendship, his wise counsel, um, preached for us a number of times. He's feeling awkward because I'm saying too many positive things about him, so he's moving up here. Um, but thank you, Hunter, for being here. Uh, so please welcome him. Uh, Jordan, Jordan Fisher, who's putting this on, helping put this on, and Gary called me at 6.28 and asked me where I was, and where I was was at home, um, getting ready to come here, but I thought this started at 7, so I had the challenge of, I only live three miles from here, but as you, as you know, that now, used to, I could get here in five minutes, but that, it takes about 30 minutes to drive three miles in Denver now, so, um, so I was like right on time, like guys, I'm running right on time, and so I had the great, I had the great challenge of driving across down Park Avenue, and trying to drive justly, while on my way to talk about what I think is a great uh, justice, justice issue, so it was challenging, and I, I sinned multiple times on the way over here, so I, I want to pray. That's what I, that's, that was. A, that was intro to say. I want to pray to get us going, and then uh, and then we'll start. So let's pray. Father, we love you. I trust that most, if not all, of the people in this room tonight have been have been redeemed by uh, Jesus. Have been given your grace. And and for those of us who who haven't, God, we're, maybe we're curious about what it means to be people who experience and reflect your grace to the world. So I, I ask your Spirit would come would come and help us tonight. And uh, just, just in the, my, own little, my own little private world of the last hour, I'm just reminded of need for, for grace and, and mercy and, and kindness. And so I pray your spirit would be here and give us just that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So they want me to develop a, a theology of welcoming the stranger. That's what I was told to do. So, uh, so let's do this. I want to I talk one passage, really, and I'll, I'll, I'll point you to a few others in Scripture. There's so many places we could go. There's so many places we could go. But the place I want us to look at is in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. So if you brought a Bible, open there. If you, just, if you brought a phone, just Google Deuteronomy 24, and, and it'll extract uh, one, of the, one of the Deuteronomies in the clouds. Now, okay, so here's the deal. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is right before... Israel enters the promised land. And God is giving them his law again. He's telling them 
how they're going to live, the kind of people they're going to be in, in the land. He's, he's given them laws for how they're going to live in the land. Now, here's why that's really important, because Israel's redemption, their, their exodus, their captivity in, in Egypt, their exodus from Egypt, their, their journey for 40 years to the promised land, and their entry into the land, that is a type, it's a pattern of the gospel of Jesus. So this is, this is how scripture works. The Old Testament will often uh, use events and circumstances that set down a pattern for what the ultimate redemption in Jesus looks like. So the ultimate type in scripture of the gospel is the exodus event and the entry into the promised land. So it goes like this. Israel is a people that are living under the rule and reign of an evil ruler, an evil power who is grinding them down. In fact, Pharaoh claimed to be like a god, right? He's grinding them down. God comes and rescues them from that. Now, they are not sin-free, innocent people in and of themselves because they, like all of humanity, have been born under the curse of Adam, have participated in the sins of Adam. Even, even, in their, even their, their patriarchs have long history of, of unrighteousness. So, when God comes to redeem them, he has to somehow figure out, he has to judge Pharaoh, he has to strike down this evil power who is ruling over them, and then he has to free them from that so they can go be his people, and somehow the judgment has to uh, pass over them so they can be freed to be God's people, so he brings the sacrifice of a lamb, they put the blood of this lamb on their doorpost, the, the judgment passes over their house, they are then freed to go be God's people who live under God's rule and reign in the good land that God has given them, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's, that's the picture. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We are all living under the tyranny of sin. We are all living under the curse of Adam. And we are all participants in that to some degree or another. And this causes us all kinds of grief, some of it our own making, some of it not our own making. And God, through his son Jesus, atones for our sins so that the judgment that he has to bring in order to establish his kingdom on earth can pass over us. He then releases us to go be his people, and one day we will live under his rule and reign in a perfect land. So it will be a perfect land. It will cover the whole earth. There will be no death there. Everything will, be, will, be, will flourish in this new land that we're going to live under God's rule and reign in, the new heavens and new earth. That's the end of the Bible, okay? So this is just a picture of that. So we can then take God's law, which is how he tells Israel to live. We can take how he tells Israel to live, his ethics for Israel, the kind of people he wants them to be. We can then take that and see the kind of community he wants the Jesus people to be as well, because this is what his kingdom is like. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is right before they go into the promised land. Look in verse 17. This, is, this comes... A, this comes in a sequence of, of all kinds of ways they are to live. But, but look what he says in verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. A garment was like uh, something really expensive. It would be like, you shall not take his Rolex watch as a pledge, right? That's what your garment had value. It was, like a, it was like a Rolex. So, you shall not pervert the justice that due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment. That's all she has. That's the most valuable thing she has in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Okay, so what's the picture here? The picture here is 
When, when you go in and you're living in my land, you're living under my good rule and reign, which if you're a follower of Jesus, you are now living under God's good rule and reign, even though you're not in the fullness of the promised land yet. You're living under his good rule and reign. You are not to pervert the justice that is due to the sojourner. Now, the sojourner was, was someone who had experienced a special measure of injustice, and therefore they, they didn't have a home. They were... They were, they, they were not in their native land. They, they, the circumstances in their native land prevented them from being able to live there and flourish there. They had experienced a special measure of injustice. Now, here's, here's what justice means. It just means equity. It means giving to everyone what is their due. So, in an ideal world, everyone is due as human beings, as human beings, not, not because we're redeemed, but just because we're human and we're made in the image of God, we're all, we're all due a measure of dignity and respect and opportunity and the basic necessities of life. In a perfect world, everyone would have access to, everyone would have access to the resources of the world in an equitable distribution of that. So let me just speak as, let me just speak as a a guy who was raised in a, in a middle-class American home. Okay. That, that, by definition, not, not especially wealthy home, like my parents were just you know, working people who, who sweated out job loss and all that stuff. Okay? So, but by definition, by definition, I am, one, uh, I ha- I am one of the most privileged people to ever live on the earth, by definition. I have access by being a middle-class American, especially a middle-class white American, I have access to opportunities. I'm kind of an in, like an insider. So you could think of it like this. If, if, I, if I work hard, if I work hard, okay? So let's not deny that, uh, let's not deny that I work really hard, because I work really hard, guys. Okay, let's just not deny that. Like, I'm one of the hardest working people around. So let's just say I'm one of the hardest working men alive. And then um, there is, let's say, an immigrant to the United States who's also one of the hardest working men alive. If we both work at the same degree of hardworkingness, it's very, 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 very likely. Let's say, let's say uh, I start working really hard when I'm 20 years old, and let's say... He starts working really hard when he's 20 years old. It's very, 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 very likely that my outcome is going to be more prosperous than his simply by virtue of who I am, okay? So that is systemic inequity that's woven into the world. So there's justice, God says, that is, that is due. There's justice that is due to the sojourner, the person who's... who's Life and their homeland has not provided them safety and security and comfort. There's justice that's due to them and to the fatherless and to the widow who are the vulnerable in that society. So you've been redeemed by grace. Remember the justice that is due to others. Now look at verse 19. When you, when you reap your harvest in your field and gather a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, what, do you, what happens when you beat an olive tree? When you, when you whack the olive tree, what happens? 
Olives come out. Right, okay. So, so you're, getting, you're gathering your olives. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. So don't keep beating them until you get every last olive out of the tree. That's the picture. Okay, the picture before that is when you reap your harvest in the field and you forget a sheaf in the field, like, oh, we forgot to do that little part. You're not going to go back. When you're, when you're harvesting your olives and you're beating your olive tree, to make, you're not going to beat it until every single olive falls out of it. Why? Uh, he goes on, let's see. When you gather the grapes, verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now what's going on here? He's saying your objective in this good land that you're in, this land that's going to have wheat and olives and grapes, and you're going to use that to make wine. Your objective in this land is not to simply maximize your profit in the land. That is not your objective. You are going to have, you're going to have plenty. I'm going to take good care of you. I'm your God. You're going to have plenty. Your objective is not to squeeze everything out of it that you can for yourself, but rather to leave some for the most vulnerable so they can come behind you and they can also get some olives out of your tree. Okay, that's the, that's the picture. This is how God wants his redeemed people to, to live. This is, this is how, he, how he hopes and he, and he cares that, that they live in, in his land. This is what it looks like to, to, to give justice to those who have not had as much as, as we have. So, so you'll, see this throughout, you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. You'll see talk of justice. For example, Proverbs 31, 9 says, Open your mouth. Judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Micah 6, 8, one of the more famous verses in the Bible. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, to do justice means, it means more than simply leave a little bit behind for others. To do justice means to go about actually helping those who have suffered from the injustices of the world. That's what doing justice means. It's, it's restorative. This is, this is who we're to be as God's people. Now, given that that's, given that that's uh, laid out for us in Scripture, okay? Now, righteous is a word that's often described. Often it's based on the same word as justice. Okay? Right, the righteous is a person who is just. A righteous person in the Old Testament is someone who doesn't just have a good private morality. It's someone who uses everything God has given them to build up the community, especially those who have suffered unjustly. That's, that's what righteousness means. So if, if your righteousness does not have a dimension of doing justice to it, by biblical definition, you're not yet righteous. Okay? So you'll see, uh, we taught, those of you who go to Park Church, I think I preached on this a few weeks ago, here, uh, Proverbs tells us when it goes well with the righteous, Proverbs 11, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. The reason the city rejoices when the righteous prosper is that the righteous are people who use their prosperity to bless, to bless others, especially those who have suffered unjustly. Okay. Now, given that, that's, given that that's a part of what we're called to be as God's people, I just want to reflect a little bit on, on why that's 
on why that's important. And, and what Hope in Our City is doing is, is helping us to, to manifest justice and righteousness as it pertains to sojourners, to those who have been displaced. Now, refugees, what are refugees by definition? Refugees are people who have been displaced from their homeland. In other words, they couldn't, many of them couldn't live if they didn't leave. They certainly couldn't flourish if they didn't leave. That is by definition injustice. So they're suffering from injustice. So as God's people, we have an opportunity, we have an opportunity to do justice as it pertains to those who are in to who are in our midst. Now let me let me reflect a little bit on why I think that's important, okay? First of all, it reflects the nature and the heart of God. That 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 ought to be that ought to be number one reason. It reflects the nature and heart of God. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things. This is it's essential to worship and it's essential to our witness. So it's essential to our worship as worshipers, as people who we worship publicly as the church. We follow Jesus. We, we worship God. Other people see that, okay? But it, we worship. It's essential to our worship. It's essential to reflecting the nature and the heart of God that, that we care for though. We care about those who have suffered injustice. We're not just in the world to get as many grapes and as much wheat and as many olives out of the tree as we can. We're, we're not here to maximize profit simply for ourselves, but we're, we're blessed by God to be a blessing to others. It reflects his heart, Okay. It helps us to remember our true story, and our true story is, is people who have been redeemed by grace. So that's, that's evident in the Deuteronomy narrative. It also challenges the idols of our heart. Now this is important. An idol is something you look to besides God for what God only God can give. So an idol is something you look to for security, for safety, for comfort, for meaning, or purpose, when that's supposed to be, have been given to us by God. Uh, and the author Andy Crouch says that idols promise us security, they promise us prosperity without vulnerability. They, promises that, they promise us that we can have something great without suffering. That's what idols promise us. We don't have to be vulnerable. We can be safe and we don't have to be vulnerable. That's, that's what an idol promises us. What it ends up leaving us is vulnerable and unsafe. That's, what, that's where an idol eventually leads us. So just, if you think about what are classic American idols, especially among the more privileged of Americans, comfort is one of our idols. So we, we want to be comfortable without, without suffering. Money and, and financial security is one of our idols. We want to we have good stuff and not have to suffer, and, and it, it can protect us, Okay. Ambition is one of our idols. We can make a name for ourselves. We can build ourselves up. We can, we can become who we want to be. That's one of our idols. I get to construct an image of who I want to be. To get involved with the vulnerable challenges all of that. It's uncomfortable. It costs money. And it limits your ambition because you're not simply in the world to be who you want to be. So it, it challenges our idols. Um, it's also essential to our witness as God's people. It helps the vulnerable see God's heart for them. In fact, people are most open to the gospel of Jesus when 
they are vulnerable. That's like many of us, that's when we came to faith. We came to faith at a vulnerable time in our lives. God renewed us and did good things in our hearts at a very vulnerable, weak time in our lives. So it's, it's okay to, to say, as you serve, you want people to see the heart of the true God for them. You want them to be open to the gospel. So it, it helps them to see God's heart for them, which, which makes them open to the gospel. It also affects our wider witness in the world. Um, the history, the history of, of Christianity in America is, is very curious. It goes, it goes something like this. For, for, for a, since the founding of America to be a white Protestant, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, is to be primarily a, a, in a position of cultural influence, cultural comfort, power, privilege. You're, you're an insider to America to be a, to be a white Protestant, okay? Now, that has begun to change lately, right? That's begun to change. It, now, America is much more pluralistic than it, than it used to be. America is, is, is much more diverse than it used to be. And, and it's interesting to watch how white Protestants react to diversity, what, what, do, what do many of us want to do? Many of us want to take America back to where it was in the 20s and 30s. Okay, why? Because it was more comfortable, it was more secure, we could be powerful without suffering. So, to get involved with the vulnerable challenges all of that. It says, it says we are willing to engage our world as it is, not as we are nostalgic that it, that it would be. We are, we are willing to turn loose of power. We're willing to turn loose of privilege. We're not trying to regain, to regain privilege. So that's, it, it's essential to our witness. Many people in the world right now are asking this about, about white Protestants, especially evangelicals. Are you guys just interested in maintaining your own power and your own position and your own influence? Or do you actually care about people who are not like you. And how we answer that question with our lives, will, not with our mouth, with our lives, will determine our witness and our future as a vibrant body of Christ and part of the vibrant body of Christ in, in America. Okay? So I, I think for all these reasons, when, when these guys were talking about uh, starting, Hope in Our City is a pretty young organization, when they were talking about starting it, uh, this is something that I wanted I wanted to be part of because ultimately this is a way of reflecting the nature of God, remembering our true story as people who are redeemed, remembering that this is not our home, but we have a home that is to come, challenging the idols of our heart and ultimately witnessing to the refugees in our midst and also to our whole city about what, the, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So for all those reasons, I'm, that's, that's my... That's my that's my theology. It's worship, it's witness, it's resisting idolatry, it's reflecting the heart of God, it's being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus ourselves, and we have an incredible opportunity to do that. So these guys are going to tell us practically how that goes. Cool. Do you want to do Q&A now, or do you want to... Okay. Just a couple quick questions for you. Um, one, how does this theology get worked out at Fellowship? Practically. Yeah. Practically, 
we encourage, we encourage us, we encourage everybody to, to find an area, especially in your immediate surroundings, an area uh, or a people who are vulnerable and invest yourself into them. Now, there are, I don't have to tell you, there are enough, there are enough vulnerable people in our midst that you as an individual cannot possibly meet every need, right? So I, I want it, here's, I want to do two things simultaneously. I want to compel you with the necessity of being a just people. We all ought to have, we all ought to have areas or people who are vulnerable who we're going to invest ourselves in. And I, I say ourselves intentionally. That means my money, that means my energy, that means my time. We all ought to be doing that. Then I think it's okay for you to determine how God has gifted you and where he's called you to serve. So a lot of times, Christian, Christian and within the church, we do this. We say, here's a problem. You ought to do something about it. You ought to do something about it. It's easy to get stretched really thin, right? So I just want to say, if, if the whole body of Christ, if everyone who claims to be the follower of Jesus had one vulnerable community or one vulnerable person who they were investing in themselves into, we would be an incredibly powerful witness. And, and we, would do a lot of, we would do a lot of justice in our city. So that's, that's, kinda, that's how we flesh it out. So at Fellowship then, we present opportunities to, to you and I trust that you guys do the same thing. Just like we're doing tonight, we present opportunities uh, to you, and then we, we give you the responsibility of discerning with your family, with your friends, is this where, is this where God has both gifted me and burdened me and called me to, to serve. That's great. Um, second, what are some resources that you guys at Fellowship or you personally have found helpful in navigating through this as you, you think well and, and serve yeah. well? Um, the most important, re- the, mo- the best resource, you can, you, can, you can read books at Infinitum. So by resources, if this means books, if, if resources means books, then, then just go read Generous Justice by Tim Keller. You'll have a great theology of, of justice, and then you don't have to read any more books, okay? So that's, that's the, hey, that, that applies to pretty much everything Tim Keller writes. If you read him, you've read everything else, because he's read everything else, synthesized it. Okay, so that's a, that's a resource for you, okay? That's a resource. But, but here's what I want to get at, too. I want to get this. It's, it's, both, it's both contemplation and action. It's both and. and. And there's not necessarily an order to that. Some of you learn by going and getting involved, and then you figure out what you're doing after you've gotten involved, right? And then and you learn the, the theology of it after you've gotten involved. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. Like, Jordan and his wife, Katie, man, their heart is bent toward action. They, they, their heart, God has just given them a heart that is bent toward the poor and the vulnerable. It's, it's bent toward action. And then I'm like, hey, look, Jordan, you ought to read this Tim Keller book. He, like, explains why you're doing what you're doing and, and, and the heart of it. So some of you, that's great. And then some of you are, you think and then you act, Right? It just, these need to work in, in concert. We need to be people who are developed both in, in our lives and how we live and, and in our thinking. So by all means, read that Tim Keller book. But then the other resource that you've got to do is, is our, our ministry partners in our city are the experts in particular communities that are vulnerable. So 
the main thing I want to do resource-wise is pair people up and get them connected to people who are ahead of them and doing this work. So I hope in our city is, is one of those. They're serving a vulnerable community. They understand a vulnerable community probably better than most of us do. So I want to help you get connected to that. Thank you. Yep. Our next, we're going to hear from two ladies with the African Community Center, um, Kelly Woodard and Aaron Frank. I think they're going to tag team up here. Um, both have served with uh, African Community Center for a number of years, and they, they're one of two resettlement agencies that work in all of Colorado. So when refugees come to our state, uh, they're one of two agencies that will help get them settled um, in our state. Um, Aaron is the resettlement programs manager at the center. And she's worked with refugees for more than 13 years and did mission work in West Africa for four years prior. Uh, she and her husband live in Wheat Ridge and are members of Denver Presbyterian Church. And then also going to hear from Kelly. And she's the community orientation coordinator at the center. Um, also here in Denver, she teaches what's called America 101, uh, just getting people educated and uh, introduced uh, to the country, um, to new arrivals. And then also at home, she's a uh, mother to four boys. Uh, who have all resettled to the U.S. as refugees from different, from different countries. So please welcome them to come up and share with us. The door was stuck. We couldn't get through. Um, thank you so much for that introduction. And I'm Erin Frank, and I work for African Community Center. And this is Kelly, and we're going to kind of team up on this. Oh, okay. Well, um, I think I'll maybe just hold it. Um, so we're here to give you a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what refugee resettlement looks like in the U.S., but specifically also here in Colorado. How many of you guys know a refugee personally? Raise your hand if you know. Or, oh, great. Well, we can. How many of you know how they got here? Okay, good. Still a good number. So we're going to go through um, some of the big picture and some of the details and the process, and then I think we have a few minutes for Q&A at the end of this. So if something um, jogs your brain or you have a question as we talk about it, just jot it down, and then we'll have a chance to ask questions. And then I'm going to also try to look at our, at our slides as we go. Okay, I think we can go ahead to the next slide. Thanks, Ben. So we are talking about African Community Center, and we are a refugee resettlement agency, and we'll talk a little bit later about what that means, and specifically talking about refugees. A lot of you raised your hand and said that you know a refugee, but there's a saying that we like to use that's when you've met a refugee, you've met a refugee, you know, meaning that refugees are so different from each other. We can't just say refugees and paint them all with the same brush. There's such variety um, of backgrounds, of personalities, of cultures, that it's really important when we're talking about refugees tonight to be thinking of individuals, not just like a mass of people. Um, a lot of famous people have been refugees. You can, uh, I think that this poster also kind of shows all these different people, these little Lego men, just showing you that, you know, it's really hard sometimes even just to pick out a refugee out of a group of people. Okay, next slide. So when we talk about how people have come to America, a lot of times these words get interchanged. Um, and so the first one is immigrant. And an immigrant, obviously, is just someone who is residing in the United States legally, 
Um, but they're not fleeing a dangerous situation. They're just choosing to move, maybe for better job opportunities, maybe to live with family. Um, and so they have legal um, process to get here that way. Asylees are people that have are already present in the United States. They get over here somehow, and when they get to our border, then say, I was in a dangerous situation. Here's why it is unsafe for me to go back to my home country, and they can apply for asylee status. There are also parolees, um, which is a special law that allows Cubans and Haitians to come over to the United States under kind of a special program and receive some services. Um, but tonight we're specifically talking about refugees as the refugee crisis is the one um, that we want to address. Um, and even with refugees, there are both um, unaccompanied refugee minors, so there are children that come over, um, as well as families, single adults, um, couples. We even have some really old grandmas and grandpas these days, too. Kelly was just telling me about somebody in her class, which is like a 80-year-old grandma. So imagine that, coming to a brand new country where you don't speak the language, you're 80 years old. So refugees come really from a variety of situations, and they flee for a variety of reasons. I mean, most common is war. Um, I think that, you know, a lot, it's been on the news a lot in the last couple of years, right? We've seen a lot of sad pictures. We've seen a lot of um, photo essays, short films, interviews showing these situations. Sometimes people will leave very, very suddenly. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard where people are literally like, you know, my auntie was making dinner and we were playing beside her and my mom was in the field and the soldiers came and they started shooting and everybody started running and that was the last time I saw my mother. So certainly like really dramatic situations where people are just living their everyday life. Obviously they know that they're in a conflict zone, but then they just leave. Others have told stories um, where they're in a situation, it's a war zone, and imagine that they're sort of like in a pot of water and it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and they make a decision, we are going to leave. We're going to pack some things, we're going to put some things together, we maybe will pay somebody, we maybe will um, you know, leave at night, but we have a plan and we leave. So there's all in the spectrum in between of how people flee their country. Um, sometimes people are fleeing cities, you know, many of our refugees that we serve today have left, especially like a lot of our Iraqis or Afghanis, have left nice homes, good jobs, careers. And then you have um, people that are coming from really rural areas that have been subsistence farmers for most of their, their lives. So it's also that whole spectrum of what they're leaving behind when they flee. Everything from sort of urban life to rural life, to uh, having lived in war zones, or to leaving in a crisis, or making this conscious decision to leave. Literally, some people arrive at the airport with one small bag in their hand. And some people arrive with 10 bags. It really just depends on where they're coming from, how they left, and how long they have been displaced. Um, there's a statistic that last year, 34,000 people were displaced every day. And that doesn't mean that they became refugees that could have fled within their own country, but 34,000 a day, I mean, that number is mind-boggling. That's 24 people a minute that have fled. Just let that sink in for a minute because that's a really stunning number. So when someone does leave their home, if they stay within their country, within their borders, they're just in it 
internally displaced person. If something happens in Denver and we all flee up to Montana, we are just internally displaced. The moment we cross the border into Canada, for example, we can then apply for um, refugee status. So people in all these different countries, once they have crossed the border from their country, they apply with the UNHCR for refugee status. And to get refugee status, they have to have a well-founded fear of persecution due to race, religion, nationality, social group membership, or political opinion. So living in poverty and wanting to flee poverty does not then allow them to be a refugee. They must be persecuted for one of those five reasons. And the UNHCR is the one that makes that determination and then will grant refugee, sti refugee status in that second country or not. So when you think about refugees, they've fled, something has happened, they've crossed the border, you've heard the term refugee camp. When I first started this work and I heard the term refugee camp, I imagine like, I don't know, like 30 tents, like a little encampment or like a little village. But refugee camps can be hundreds of thousands of people, really like small cities. You can kind of see some pictures here um, of these two refugee camps. This one here, I believe is in Jordan, and as you, you, know, you can't see the picture very close up, but you can see it's rows upon rows upon rows of temporary shelters. You can see how desolate it is. It's in the desert. There's not one single green item or water anywhere in sight. And then you can see here, and this is a camp on the Thai-Burma border, and it's very lush. Um, it's built into a hillside. And then you see here an urban refugee, so somebody that has fled to a city and has gotten their paperwork or gotten their status and they're living in a city. Even though that one looks kind of nice or just walking around looks like things they can buy, even urban refugees sometimes have, are living in very dangerous situations. Even they can be abused or harassed even if they have proper documentation to be in that country as a place of asylum. Refugee camps can often be very dangerous areas. You think of a lot of people crammed in a small space fighting over resources. You think about people fleeing the conflict. They didn't just leave the conflict behind. Often they take the conflict with them. Um, there's also some examples of statistics of gender-based violence in some of the camps in Congo. And uh, girls between the ages of 12 up is like 98% of them have been sexually assaulted or abused just because of the dangerous kind of situation. And often, these young, vulnerable kids are often without guardians who can protect them. Or maybe they're only with their mother who, who can't necessarily protect them and take care of them. So a refugee camp is not a great place to be. I mean, you kind of know it, but then when you think really about um, the environment that they're living in, shortages of food and water, medical care, schooling, um, you realize that they are living, they've left dire circumstances and they're living in dire circumstances. A lot of people that we're resettling now in Colorado have been in camps for 15 to 25 years. So a long, long time. Um, and they're often in very inhospitable parts of the country that they're in because the country that is hosting them, there's a lot of politics involved, there's a lot of money involved, but they don't give them you know, prime real estate with a lot of resources. So there's a lot of argumentation fighting over the resources that they're even using. So they fled their country, but they're living in a variety of situations. A lot of times they develop health issues that just become chronic. Even something small, you know, if you're walking miles and miles and miles, you may, you know, have foot injuries. And if it's not treated for years and years and years, it just becomes chronic and maybe permanent. So they flee these situations and they're living in situations like this.
And often men and women don't have jobs. There's not job opportunities in camp either. So then you're sitting there for 15 years feeling purposeless, which then increases the violence as well. So global perspective, there are 65 million people at the end of 2015 that are forcibly displaced from their homes. They may still be in their country, they may be outside of their country, but 65 million. And of those, 20 million have been able to claim refugee status. They've been able to prove that they are persecuted for one of those five reasons. So that leaves 45 other million people who um, are not in their homes but cannot get refugee status. 51% of that 20 million are a, under the age of 18. So mass amounts of children um, that do not have homes. Many children born in refugee camps, so often we have children that come in and the only life they have ever known is life in a refugee camp. And once, oops, go back. Um, there are three solutions for someone who leaves their home. The first one is repatriation. It's to return home. And people want to leave, return home. If we all have to leave Colorado, this is our home. It's where we want to be. I don't want to live in the fields of Montana. I want to be in my home with my family. And so that is the hope of the majority of our people, is to be able to go home with their families, their friends, their loved ones, their country. Um, and sometimes that happens. If the war, maybe they're in a camp for 10 years, but then the war that brought them out of their country has settled back down, they can go back home. Then home has its own challenges. No one has been there farming, so there's no food. The infrastructure is now non-existent or very weak. And so those, that comes with significant challenges as well. Um, another option is local integration, to become part of the country that they have fled to. Again, that's very rare. Um, many of the countries that people are fleeing to, those neighboring countries, are also countries struggling um, with their own issues, with their own conflict. In Africa, frequently you'll hear people flee the Congo and go into Burundi, but Burundi's a mess, and so the people, Burundians, are going into the Congo or into Tanzania. So there's not a lot of infrastructure for people who want to live there as residents. And so then the third option for refugees is to be resettled in a third country. Um, and there are countries throughout the world that take refugees, um, and the United States is the largest. So the U.S. – sorry, that was really – I'm getting used to this. The U.S. resettles more than all the other countries combined. And it seems like that, like, wow, maybe that's a really big number, but just check out these statistics. That's our little bucket because this is a drop in the bucket. It's less than one-half of 1% 1 of the world's refugees, not displaced people, but the world's refugees are resettled in a third country. The U.S. resettles 0.002% of that number. So it's a very tiny number compared to sort of like the global issue in need. Um, every year there's a presidential determination and where the president and his advisors, they come up sort of with the ceiling number and they will say, you know, we will take up to this many people this year. You may have seen that in the news. If we go to the next slide, this gives you, I don't, I'm not sure how, how you, if you can read it, if it's big enough, but basically it's divided into regions and this is based on a lot of things. This is based on the capacity to process cases. This is based on need. This is based on politics. This is based on many, many things. But this is, this is the regional ceiling. So from Africa, and this is talking about nationally in the U.S., 25,000. A lot of Somalis in Kenya and Ethiopia are still being resettled. Eritreans, 
Congolese, those are some of the top African populations. Um, East Asia, 13,000, so that's a lot of the Burmese ethnic minorities that are coming out of Thailand and Malaysia. That's a little bit of a smaller number because a lot of those camps are closing in terms of resettlement because there's, the wave is kind of crested and is, and is finishing. In Europe and East Asia, about 4,000. Those are religious minorities from the former Soviet Union. A lot of those are folks that um, we would consider brothers and sisters in Christ who have been persecuted and are able to come out of Ukraine or other places. Latin America, this includes um, Cubans that are being able to be resettled as refugees. Many of them have been in the pipeline for a long time and are just now getting resettled. And some Colombians, occasionally we don't receive a lot of Colombians. Um, I can only think of maybe like five cases in 10 years. And then Northeast and Southeast Asia, 34,000. This includes Iraqis, Syrians, Afghanis, Iranian religious minorities, and ethnic Nepalis that came out of Bhutan and been living in Nepal for the past 25 years. And then they have sort of what they call an unallocated reserve, which is 6,000, and that's just basically saying we have some discretionary numbers here. So that's how it breaks down. It's not saying we will get this exactly 25,000 from this region, but it can go up to that. So the actual process, there's a lot of misinformation out there in the media, um, in the communities. It is a process that takes years. As Aaron said, many people have been there 10, 15, 20 years. Um, there are interviews that family members must do. Often um, they wait for, they'll be called in for an interview and the entire family must go, so even small children, and they'll sit there for eight to 10 hours waiting for their turn. They don't get seen, they come back the next day. Um, some have described it as interrogation. They will ask you questions, they're trying to find holes in your story, and they'll talk to the wife and ask those same questions. Are there holes? Do things add up? Um, and if you're already stressed and you just experienced significant trauma, now you're being interrogated, trying to prove that you are um, at risk. That can be a very complicated process for people. Um, background screenings that are done by UNHCR, that are done by um, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, all of those different screenings. Um, there are medical screenings. There are certain diseases that must be treated overseas before they can come here. I believe there are certain things if somebody is positive they can't come over here um, because we don't want to spread significant disease here. So sometimes that will postpone. Maybe they do have something that needs to be treated and it's going to take a while before they can come over as well. Um, some of these pictures, there's a family kind of going through the UNHCR interview process. Um, this is one of the Syrian questioning centers. So again, people in line for hours and hours with their children. And then when they are accepted, um, this is a picture of people basically on the bus leaving their camp to go to their third country or to their new country. Um, and it, that is with the International Organization for Migration. So once they are approved to go, they are responsible to pay for back their airline tickets. They do not get a, they come over here and it's depending on their country when they come, approximately $1,200 or more. Um, so imagine if you're a family of eight, the cost that you were, are agreeing upon in your refugee camp. When I get to America or Australia, I will pay back that loan. Um, and with that loan, um, it is an interest-free loan that they pay back, and it also does help them establish credit because they obviously arrive with zero credit. Um, and this bus will take them more of a central processing zone, maybe in the capital city, 
where they will do a community orientation to start to learn about that new country that they're going to. And that can be everything. If they're coming to America, U.S. cultural things they need to know. We shake hands. We make eye contact. No public urination. How your refrigerator works. Depending, again, on where they're coming from. If they're a farmer in rural Congo, that will be very different than if they were living, an engineer in Iraq, for example. Um, and even with that, imagine when you go to a new place, we create what we think it's going to be like. So they learn these things in community orientation there, but they have no context to even make sense of that. So they kind of create an image in their head um, of what their apartment or their home will be like. They're going to get off the airplane in America. They're going to have a car and a brand new house. And so then they get here, and they've heard they're going to get a new house, but really they're getting a very small one-bedroom apartment with no air conditioning, and it's 105 degrees, and they're on the third floor. And it's just, it's not that they were given false information. They just had a false expectation of what that was going to look like. And there, I think we'll just briefly touch on this next slide. There's a copy of this slide on your table in case you want to know a little bit more um, and if, you want to, if you're a visual person and want to see the process of how people enter into the U.S., it is a very long, arduous process. Once the cases are approved, there are nine national agencies that are based around Washington, D.C., that are independent nonprofits, and they're basically like contractors that contract with the federal and state governments to, to be the hands and feet of the federal refugee resettlement program. You know, the people in Washington that put a little bit of money toward it and make the rules aren't the ones that are actually doing the work. It's those of us that are in the cities and in the towns that are receiving them. So nine national agencies. In uh, Colorado, we have two right now. We have African Community Center, and then we have Lutheran Family Services of the Rocky Mountains. When actually Lutheran is joined, we actually have three representatives, joined with EMM, which is Episcopal Migration Ministry, so they are a joint resettlement site. And... This is sort of breaking news in resettlement world. The International Rescue Committee is also opening in Colorado this fall. So a third agency is coming, which will really bolster and help meet the needs in our city. So we um, receive cases, and basically it is, it's based on your capacity. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a contract to say, we can do these services, but we are independent nonprofits. Um, it's an underfunded program. I know that sometimes people criticize the refugee resettlement program to say, like, oh, we're throwing all this money toward them. But actually, it's usually in the past has received pretty strong bipartisan support because it's a public-private partnership where the government says, we run this program, it's humanitarian, yet we'll give this much money, but we are expecting you in the community, through your churches, through your or community organizations, to be raising money to match it to also support these programs and these folks. And it looks like we're running out of a little bit of time, so we'll just quickly go through the last few. Resettlement agencies, we provide community orientation, case management, employment services, housing. We help people access health and medical. We help people access benefits. We refer them to language and other services in the community. So we're like the hub. We don't do everything within our organizations, but we are the ones that have to coordinate it. We're the ones that have to report on it. We're the ones that have to track everything, and we refer them out. And we really become a safe center. That's our goal, to become a safe center when we are welcoming people. In Colorado, we serve people for up to five years, which is a little bit different than other states. 
Front-loaded, most of the services happen at the beginning. People are the most busy, like in the first six months, but as they have need over five years, they can come back to their agencies. One of the most exciting things, I think, about the employment program, and I think we're getting, <laughs> I'm just rolling with it, is that the goal is self-sufficiency. Now at ACC, we also talk a lot about community sufficiency because we believe in community and networks. And none of us really find our own jobs and our own everything just by ourselves. We network, we have friends, we have family, we have our church communities, and that's how we, we go through life. But if you look at the 2015 Colorado employment outcomes for the refugee population of employable adults, 77 entered employment, and don't worry about entered, but 77% were working and getting off benefits. That's almost 1,200 new jobs, average wage of $10.88, and a 90-day retention, so somebody that kept their job for the first three months was at 91%. Those are really big outcomes. Can you imagine stepping off the plane in an African village and being handed you know, some matches and a few sticks and a bucket of mud and being like, okay, figure it out, and in three months you gotta be taking care of yourself. Sort of the reverse of that when people are coming and entering into a whole new way of doing things and culture. And there is a misconception out there that refugees are unable to work. They have the legal status to work, and so we are pushing very hard for them to get the training and the help. Um, they, after they've been here a year, can apply for their permanent residency, permanent residency their green card, at five years, then they can apply um, for citizenship and take the citizenship test if they speak English at the level that they're able to as well. Um, and one of our, and a little plug, we have our sewing program, which is called We Made This, um, and we actually have, it's a sewing training program for women. Um, some have experienced, some have never sewn before, and they come in and do a training program to learn to sew bags and pot holders and different items, and then we're able to sell them in the community, and the women get 55% um, of the sale, and the other 45% goes back to um, materials. So again, for some of those grandmas, or moms who have small children, they're able to have something practical to give to their family. So we're selling some of those items in the back. And really what we want to leave you with is we're talking about like, we sort of have objectified refugees here, but we want you to know that they're our neighbors. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to, and I think it really ties in with what Hunter was talking about, that these are people in our community. They're your neighbors, they're people you see at the store, they're people that you may be eating with, people that your kids are going to school with, people that you... Um, could be working with. And I just want to leave you with one quote from one of our former vice presidents of the United States, Hubert Humphrey. And he says, the impersonal hand of the government can never replace the helping hand of a neighbor. And I think that's just really motivating to think of, you know, when we are working with refugees, when we're caring and we're doing what um, God calls us to do, that's so much more beneficial and so much more impactful than just, you know, a government program or something that's government funded or some kind of, you know, structure that they have set up. So I just wanted to leave you with that. Thank you. You guys stick around for Q&A quickly. Um, number of questions. First, about how many refugees are in the Denver metro area, roughly? Um, let's see. I would say there are probably over 100,000 altogether. I would say over the years. I mean, if you think about, you know, refugee waves that are coming in the 80s, well, I mean, World War II, 
and then, you know, from then on, and then you sort of had the, like the Vietnamese and the East Asian waves in the 80s that came. So cumulatively, I could, I could say there could be that many. And another question about how many refugees are lifelong refugees? About how many, whatever stats you know, be it here in Denver, worldwide, Man, these nationally? Are, these are mean questions. <laughs> Overseas. Or a good you mean reference. like how many? You mean like how many people like die in a refugee camp? Yeah. Never how many get a become chance? refugees and never can bounce out of that? I would say a very, very large percentage. I'd say ninety percent or above. Because if it's only one less than one half of one percent that get to go to a third yeah. country, everybody else. I mean, there's just not that many people that can be repatriated, and they're just sort of always in limbo. Yeah. So you mentioned the United States has the quota, the quotas from different regions. Um, do we reach those quotas? Mm-hmm. And if not, I'm guessing not yeah. at some points. Um, are there things that, that Christians can do, churches can do, lobby groups can do to change um, us meeting those quotas and perhaps even bump those quotas up? Hmm. I would say that most of the time we, we come in a little under the quotas. Like most of the quotas are between 72 and 75,000 in the last 10 years. And you typically we would be 69, 70,000, except for years like 9-11 where things just stopped. Um, I think that a lot of it is political. It's political. It's funding. Because sometimes the reason why we don't reach the quota is just because of the capacity for processing. So, for instance, there are a lot of... Um, there have been a lot of refugees that were in Chad, but Chad was so unstable and so dangerous they could never have the infrastructure to go in and do the interviewing and do the processing and do everything that needed to be done to get people out. So there could have been people there that you know had everything. They were in the pipeline. They were approved and whatever, but even like doing the logistics and the traveling to get them out was impossible. So I would say if you support it politically, I would just say any kind of political advocacy and funding. And... You mentioned, too, once you've met one refugee, you've met one refugee. It's not, you can't make blanket statements about all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would be, you skipped over the, the handout pretty quickly just for the sake of time. Um, what would be a typical narrative of someone that is a neighbor, a coworker, someone we meet who is a refugee? What would be just a, maybe it's a particular story you know, or just what would be some basic things that would be helpful for us to know going into a conversation or just trying to get to know somebody that would be typical? I have four in my home, so this is very close to my heart. Um, Grief and loss, I think, is so significant. Not only do they have trauma, but they have lost everything they know. Their friends, their family, their culture, their food, their smell, just common smells that they know. So um, I think there's that just permeates so much. And if you've ever traveled overseas, right, there's a day that you're like, I can't take this food one more minute. I just want McDonald's or pizza or whatever (laughs) terrible American food. And that's just very true for them as well. Um, But I also would say resiliency. There's a resiliency that is intangible when you have gone through the atrocities and horrors of this world and lost people, um, that you come here and there's just this ability to bounce back and hope. Last question. Do you guys have any resources? I know Hunter mentioned a few. Any resources particular in your world that would be helpful for churches or families or small groups uh, to get further involved? I would say if, if you're interested to do something personally or with your small group, either contacting a Lutheran or African Community Center, we both have very robust volunteer programs, and there's a lot of different ways to get involved, and we provide training in that context. You can even get deeper. I mean, this is super fast, but to understand it. Other than that, I would say, I mean, there's movies out there. 
watch them with a grain of salt. But I mean, there's tons of movies. And then I think really reading books. There's a lot of books that have firsthand experiences of, of refugee challenges and triumphs and people that have been resettled. And I think those are really powerful things that kind of give you the empathy that drives you to keep serving. The UNHCR website is also very helpful. If you know what your neighbor is from Burma and you want some information on the conflict or the background, the UNHCR website has tons of information. Yeah, there's a lot online in general, tons of great little videos, you know, they're three or four minutes long that you can just, like, watch a dozen of them. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right, let's go ahead and gather back around. We've got one more uh, person to hear from tonight and a little more discussion and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, last, we're going to hear from Jordan Fisher. Uh, Jordan Fisher is the co-founder of Hope in Our City, uh, the main reason, the main impetus for why we're here tonight, um, and is also the, the CEO of the organization. Um, Hope in Our City partners with uh, churches throughout the metro area, including Park Church, Fellowship Denver, and a number of other churches um, throughout the city. And he's here to share with us um, some practical outworkings and things that, that we've been thinking about and, and hearing about so far tonight. So please welcome Jordan. Great. Thank you, guys. I wanted to start off, Hunter said that I uh, have a, a, a desire, an energy for action, and I think I'll start off by saying I did, and I, for, for what we were going to do with Hope in Our City, until I found out it was going to be working with refugees. And so I want to start with that, because I feel like there might be some people in this room that have some of the same reservations that I had. So I'm the guy that started the organization and that runs the organization working to love refugees in Denver. And yet just a year ago, I wasn't even sure why I believed about having refugees here. And so part of what we wanted to create in some pieces tonight was a little bit of the journey that I went on, that God brought me through to get to the place that I am now. And so the first part of that was this idea of, of having a, an I refugees in our own backyard, and I had little to no idea that they were here, what their needs were, how they got here, why they were here, if they even existed. I just heard they were here. And then even the bigger question, what could I do to make any difference? Um, and then in addition to that, um, being a white boy from Virginia whose father was a pastor at a conservative Baptist church, wondering, do I even believe politically that they should be here? So there's a lot of things why I could see why God chose me to be the one to start an organization that worked with them. Um, and so I thought that tonight one of the first things was this idea of, of having understanding of the theology. I worked with an organization for eight years working with orphans and widows before I started Hope in Our City. And God used the Bible and many of the same verses that I was looking to to talk about the orphan and the widow to teach me his own heart for the foreigner, the stranger, the alien in our own backyard. But for those eight years, I'd never seen it, even though in most cases it was in the exact same sentence. And so Deuteronomy, the first slide up here, 10, 18 through 19, says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. 
And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. The theme of this verse is loving the alien. How had I missed that for eight years? Didn't even make the connection. The next piece after I, God really began to teach me his heart was the facts. And that's what Aaron and Kelly did such a good job tonight on. Understanding that they broke down the lies that I had believed and the misguided fears that created in me for so long. And the truth has a way of giving space for freedom from captivity. And I feel like that's what the facts are able to do along with the theology of it. Then lastly, God introduced me to the stories. And then he graciously allowed me to be a part of them when we started Hope in Our City. I began to meet men, women, and children who I now consider to be heroes for what they've gone through. These humans have experienced more hardship than I can ever imagine. One mom lost three kids in Somalia um, before she was able to cross the border. Uh, when she crossed the border, was in a refugee camp in, in Kenya. Um, she lived there for over a decade, a decade. And while she was there, she lost four more kids. And so then she won the lottery in her own terms, and her number was called and was able to leave and left and now has seven children of her own, again, here in America. Um, and so... This is a person that I can learn a lot from. That there's life skills, there's life lessons, there's things that I need to approach her with humility about because she, like I said, is a hero to me for what she went through um, just for being born in a different country. Um, And so the third part of this journey is really what I want to talk about tonight, the stories. Um, It's the people that that. God used to kind of solidify the first two parts of the theology and the facts. Um, my first story that I want to share with you guys is about a friend. Um, she takes public, this is a picture of her, she takes public transportation to and from school. Um, one day, um, while she was at one of the stations, an older white woman came up to her and started yelling at her and blaming her for 9-11, um, calling her a terrorist and telling her that she needed to go back to her home country. Um, my friend's response was to tell this woman to judge her not for what's on her head, but for what's in her head. The woman, speechless, walked away not knowing how to respond. And so the truth is, about who she is, is that she's entering her senior year of high school. So just a young woman. She's won scholarships from numerous organizations to attend college. She wants to go into the medical profession with the hope of being a doctor so that she can work with Doctors Without Borders, to be able to give back to people that have very little because she can relate with them. So she's not a terrorist. She's not an American hater. She's not even a Christ hater. Some of the deeper ramifications of this, like I said, for those that don't know, if you're from Somalia, you are Muslim. And so the vast majority of people, I forgot to even put that in my intro, of, of people that we work with are Muslim. So Throw that into the mix of all my background as well for being a very polarizing subject that I called my parents and told them what I was doing. And, and so this idea of the deeper, though, ramifications of that conversation and that interaction that my friend had with this older woman at the public transportation is that the rest of the world knows that we profess to be a Christian nation. And so when this woman terrorizes my friend... 
all that my friend can assume is that she is a Christian because she's an American, she's white, and she's hating on Muslims. So not only do we already have this uphill battle because of the, to share the gospel with her and with Muslims because of all the cultural, religious, and century-old barriers, but how much greater did that hill just become because of her experience and her interaction at that bus station? So in order for us to learn, in order for us to grow, in order for us to be challenged, one of the things I had to learn about myself is I had to be honest. With that, as I became more honest, it is through that honesty that God can begin to shape us and mold us. We're not supposed to know all the right answers, but if we're willing to learn, God's going to walk us along that process and meet us wherever we're at in this journey of understanding what is a biblical response, not just to refugees, but just to our neighbors in general. So with that being said, I think that if we are all honest with ourselves, completely transparent, there is something inside of us, however big or small, but I think for most of us, if not all of us, that exists, that we feel that we have a good, and as Hunter talked about earlier, comfortable life because we've earned it. We might say something like this, God, thank you so much for allowing me to be born in America. You've blessed me so much and I've done nothing to deserve it. However, again, if we're being completely honest, we have this posture in our spirits for most of us that has this little bit of an idea that we deserve it, that we did enough, we built this, and so we deserve it. And I found that in being honest with myself, there was a part of me that felt that I am more blessed simply because I'm a Christian and because I'm an American. And I was challenged with the idea that God created all Muslim refugees in his image just as he created me in his image. So this posture that even if I had just a little bit of it is detected by all those that aren't from here. And it is a huge turnoff. This coupled with the fact that we are, as Americans, a self-proclaimed Christian country can be a deadly combination. So we begin to believe that we're supposed to protect this piece of land against all others as non-Christians and to keep them out and to preserve our ways. This posture is what I would consider are some of the arrogance that we have that Hunter's talking a little bit about before. And I only feel like I can talk about it because of my own story, because of me being honest about where I came from. So God is giving us an opportunity to introduce Jesus to the world by bringing them to our own backyard. Throughout the history of the world, migration of people has been a huge part of it. The verse I used earlier talks about the Jews in exile to and from Egypt. Migration of people. God called Abraham out of his country to a foreign land so that he could create a covenant with him. The migration of people has always been a part of God's movement to build his kingdom. And so we can choose to be a part of that plan by building these relationships, maybe specifically with Muslims, that God's bringing into our own backyard and welcoming the foreigner into our communities. Or we can turn our backs and we can say, no, I don't want them here. They are a drain on our society. They are a drain on our culture. And we can continue to believe the lies that misguide and misinform us all the time that come from mainstream talking heads. So the good news about my friend is that this experience didn't defy her. She has not given up on America. 
or even Christianity. In fact, she has welcomed us into her family, and she and her family are the key family that we've gotten to know in Sun Valley. She even volunteers on a regular basis with my mother-in-law at the Denver Rescue Mission serving meals. She said she loves how much they show kindness at the mission for the people that don't have anything. In addition, she is treated with gratitude by those that she's serving meals to, and she's overwhelmed by that. Do you guys know here what the mission of the De- or what the logo of the Denver Rescue Mission says? Jesus saves. So she isn't running from the gospel. In fact, she's actually running to the light. She just might not even know it yet. During the car rides to and from, my mother-in-law gets opportunities about 15 minutes each way to talk to her and have conversations. And during one of those conversations recently, my friend asked, why do you go to church? Just to begin having a conversation because we're in relationship with them and the walls are broken down and I don't know what God will begin to do. I don't know what he's already doing and will continue to do in that relationship, in her life, and in that whole family. But I know that despite our differences, we're called to go to be in communion with our neighbors. That if we just simply get into the arena and we're willing to just trust that God will guide us, that he's going to do awesome things. And we don't have to have it all figured out because one of the, the ethos is that, I think that's, you can, you can make that with a plural, ethos is, is the idea at Hope in Our City that we have really no clue what we're doing. We just show up. And we're just who we are. And so I believe that God will continue to use people that just want to get into the arena to love their neighbors, to build his kingdom. I have another story to share with you. The next picture here is of a boy who I met. Our very first day of, uh, we run a Friday recess in Sun Valley. And this is just a, uh, a community just south of here, directly south of the Bronco Stadium. Um, there's roughly uh, 4,000 people that live in this community, and they estimate that half of them are refugees from Somalia, Ethiopia, all different uh, Southeast Asia, different parts of the world that, that were being talked about before. The second Friday I showed up, this boy runs up to me and says, what's my name? I said, I have no idea. He sa- I said, what's my name? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, how can you expect me to know your name when there's dozens of kids, but there's only a few adults and you don't know not my name and you're disappointed with me? He said, that doesn't matter. You need to know my name. And at that point, I learned a really valuable lesson. The one thing that he wanted was to be known. He wanted to be accepted for who he was. And if I didn't even know his name, how do I know he exists? So we have helped people, Hope in Our City, with, with building those types of relationships. And one of the things that I learned is that him wanting to be known, that's all right, Ben, that's all right, uh, is, is exactly what I want in life. And in fact, I would argue that that's probably what all of us want, is to be known and to be accepted for who we are. And so I learned that we're actually not that different, even though on the surface there are tons of differences. So with that, been this next slide here, this is perfect. We've helped people through building these relationships. We thought the best thing to do was, as we get to know them, as we become friends, all the needs, all the other things will become much more clear. Because, as African Community Center explained, if you've met a refugee, you've met a refugee. 
You can't build a program and expect them all to fit into it. And so we've helped people get their citizenship. This is a picture of Nima. Um, and, and for those who can see, it's probably hard. She has her tights on, and they are U.S. flag tights. Um, and so um, we've helped people go to the prom. Um, we've worked through scholarship processes and even escorted one girl up to her weekend orientation at college. Um, we've helped people get jobs. Um, we've even created an interior custom design and actually learned a little bit from the African Community Center with what they talked about earlier, the idea of helping to create jobs. So we created something in Sun Valley for the women that can't go across town to African Community Center for sewing. Um, and so that we can, they can sew in their homes in Sun Valley while they also have their dozens of kids with them. Um, and so all of this has stemmed out of overcoming our fear, or more accurately, my fear, and being human enough to start just building friendships and seeing what God does from there. We've had our new Muslim friends in Sun Valley introduce us to more Muslim friends in Sun Valley because they're building, they, they actually begin to trust us. Just yesterday, I took a, a, pick, a bunch of kids up from their homes and drove them to the Rockies game, and their, only two dads came, and the rest of the kids, their parents just said, yeah, we know them, you can go. To put this in context, I've called people in, like, Minneapolis, where it's the largest number of Somali Muslim refugees, about 100,000 in just Minneapolis, and they've asked, we were trying to seek guidance from them about how do you get into the culture and one guy told me, I've moved into their community, I shop at their stores, I live across from the street from the mosque, I play basketball on their courts, and I don't know any of them. So what God did was opening these doors for a reason, and we've seen the fruit of it. And I can't explain what his end goal is with this, except for that I know he wants them to know him and love him just as much as he wanted me to know him and love him. And so on top of that, these groups of people in Sun Valley have introduced us to their friends outside of Sun Valley, asking if we can bring our programs to their communities. And because it kind of is all built on this premise that people just want to be known and want to be accepted, and from there, everything else becomes more clear. We don't go in and we don't pretend that we are the white mighty, that we know all things. Um, and so we believe that Jesus wants to use us although he is the perfect example of how to build those friendships. So our hope is to point them back to Jesus. But when Jesus prompts that, not when we just want to get a high or feel good about it. And so in order to do that, there's a few things we had to learn about what is our posture as we go into a community full of people that I consider heroes now. And there's three things that I think are really important about this, the, the posture. The first one is that we have to learn about that's this idea of if, for example, Somali community, we want to, I might research them online, I might read books about what is Somalia, why would you leave Somalia, why would you be a refugee if you're from Somalia, okay, on top of that, what food do you eat, uh, what religion do you, do you worship, what are certain things about your religion, for example, right now is the month of Ramadan, which is the month of fasting, and so last year we ran sports camps in the middle of Ramadan, it was not a good idea, because not only can they not eat, but they can't drink, from sunup to sundown. So, so we have to learn about them. Um, thankfully, they were gracious and kind, and we just sat around the soccer field instead of running around, and we talked, and it was great relationship building. Um, again, we don't know what we're doing. We just show up. The second aspect of that is we learn from. So we begin to ask questions. For Dad, the, the, the picture of the man you saw, he's become a friend of mine. 
Um, I'll talk about him a little bit later. But, for example, it would be me asking him, teach me as if I'm your son. Tell me about your culture. Tell me about why you live here. Tell me about your family. Let me understand you. Teach me. And after those two steps, and only then is the third step possible, which is that we get to learn with each other. And at that point, and only then, do I even have a voice at the table. Because until I've learned enough about them and learned enough from them to show that I care, why would they care what I have to say? And so here are some of the core values that Hope in Our City has learned, some of them the hard way and some of them just by God's grace. The first one is that we do what we say we're going to do. I talked about that Friday recess, and there's a a number of kids for the first number of months, I'm talking probably six months into running this, that it would ask us almost every Friday, is this your last Friday? And we would tell them over and over again, no, we're going to continue to do this on and on and on. But I learned very early it was because so many people come and go. And so many people tell them, we're going to be here, we're going to do this, we're going to be here forever, we're your new best friend. And then they're not even there another week. So we learned very early the importance of building trust was to do what we say we're going to do. And on the flip side of that, if we can't do it, don't say we're going to do it. Which might mean we still end up doing it, but we didn't commit to something that we weren't sure we could do. Secondly, is we wanted to create experience that would open their worldview. Um, this is, this is a, a group of people, I love the analogy, if we get transported into Congo and are dropped with a bucket and some mud and some sticks, what do you do? Well, one of the things that we want to teach them is about our culture. Because they want to know. And so we create experiences to do things. Go to the Rockies again, go on hikes. That girl who got her citizenship, we took them on a hike last year, and she was at that point entering her senior in high school, and she said, this will be the highlight of my summer which was just going to Lost Lake, not even like actually to the mountains, just outside of Boulder. The third thing is that we're true to who we are. And so I have a family worth four kids and my wife, and we early on decided that we didn't want to have to find babysitters every time we wanted to do something programmatically or go into Sun Valley, so we just brought our kids. Again, I'm not that smart, but God used it in great ways because they now looked at us and said, wow, you're bringing your family to get to know our family, not just some white dude showing up we don't know anything about. Why would we trust him? This, the fourth thing of that is we have fun. I don't really like the idea of saying we're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's not very fun, but I'm going to call it a program and you have to attend. And so we do things that are fun because, again, why would we not want to have fun? They want to have fun. We want to have fun. Let's make whatever we do fun. And the last part of that, which I think is a really important part, is to engage the whole individual, the whole family, and the whole community. It's a holistic, especially when you're working with people that aren't from here. America is very individualistic. The rest of the world is not. And so you have to engage everything about them to understand them, to be a part of them. And so engaging every aspect of that. So with that being said, tonight we're launching something we're calling the Hope Challenge. Now, the Hope Challenge is a tool that we're using to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone, maybe even address and overcome in some situations a fear that you might have. Um, just to simply love the foreigner living among us. Additionally, it's designed that we want to capture some of these stories to be able to encourage other people about what God is doing and how he's glorified when people just positively impact people. So my last story that I want to share with you is about my hope challenge. I felt a prompting by the Spirit to invite uh, one of my Muslim Somali friends living in Sun Valley to come play on our softball team that I manage and that I play on. Uh, I was hesitant because I'm competitive, 
and I didn't think he'd be very good. And I was then also nervous because I grew up as a pastor's kid in Northern Virginia where image is a big thing. What are my teammates going to think about me recruiting somebody that they don't know, that might not be good, and we, we're not going to win, and those types of things. So over, over the process of, again, just being honest with myself and accepting that that was what I thought and just kind of saying, okay, God, this is where I'm at. You've got to help me through this. I finally had the courage to call him. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. So I show up and I begin to, to bring a glove and it took f- 15 minutes for him to figure out how to put a glove on. And so he comes to the game and after the first game, and, and you know, we put him in catcher and we just try to get familiar with it and all kinds of, I don't have enough time to go into all the details. So after the game, he though texts me and I think there's a picture of the text here. I don't know that you can actually read it, but it says, thanks, all the team to invite me into the team. I am very happy. So then, below that, is this emoji of a strong arm over and over again. And I'm not exactly sure what that represents. But I thought maybe he is more American than I thought because he knows that in order to play baseball, you have to be on steroids. So... Then in our second game, which was just last week, his wife showed up, his kids came, and not only did that happen, but he had his very first hit and scored his very first run of his life. I mean, what fun to be a part of that. And I'm so glad that I didn't let my fear and my hesitation get in the way of allowing God to do something like that. And again, it's fun. It's just part of life. And so, to end tonight... We want to give each of you guys an opportunity to accept and be a part of a hope challenge. Um, There's, again, just as a reminder, the the point of this is just to be a tool to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone, maybe to overcome a fear and just kind of see what God does and how he wants to show up because you're jumping into the arena. So here are some examples of some things that you can do. You can introduce yourself to a foreigner. It's that simple. You can take a foreigner to coffee. You can volunteer with Hope in Our City, with African Community Center, with Lutheran Family, with other organizations. You can ask a foreigner just to simply tell you about their home country. And you can invite a foreigner over to dinner. And I use the word foreigner here because it's sometimes difficult to know if they're a refugee. You don't have to, like, nail it on the head. So, but here's the other sad side of the foreigner is that we're not very good at welcoming any neighbors. We have a friend that, that is in my kid's school, and they're from China, and we invited them over to dinner, and they brought a plethora of gifts. Does anybody know why they brought so many gifts? Because they bring suitcase full of gifts because they expect to go to many people's homes while they're here and give gifts while they're here to the homes they go to, and that nobody had invited them over yet for dinner. And so, if, if you want to accept this challenge, we're going we're gonna to end the night with a, a little bit more of discussion, time to fill that out. But if you want to accept it, there is a Hope, card, a Hope in Our City challenge card that there should be on every table. If there's not enough on your table, I know we had to add some things in the back. Ben's got some. Ben or somebody, if anybody doesn't have one, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll walk them around. But... The idea behind this is that you would just simply, on your left side, write your name and your email address, and then you'd just rip that off, and you'd stick it in the box in the middle of your table. And then you'd keep the right side, which is, I accept the Hope Challenge by Hope in Our City. This is a reminder to pray 
and act. And on the back are just some of the bullet points. And then it's a, the website of where you could go to share your story of what happens. And so, in acting on this, I want us all to remember what, we started, what I started with. My story and our posture. This isn't about you building your own kingdom or feeling good or putting a feather in your cap. Success is not determined by somebody saying the sinner's prayer at the end of coffee. In fact, if you are doing those three steps, you probably don't have a lot of talking time, and it might be a long time before you even have the opportunity to present the gospel if you're learning about them and from them. And so the hope is that you trust God to do the work and you just show up. So as we wrap up tonight, as we leave, I encourage everyone to leave with a heart of love. And, and that is not just towards the refugee, the foreigner, the stranger. That's actually more towards maybe some coworkers, some family members, some people that might not have a similar view that you do about this subject. Because the goal here is not to give you a bunch of ammunition that you can then take and just shoot around and, at everybody who doesn't agree with you. The goal instead is that we lead by example and that we inform others politely with patience because we want that same response from God towards us. I'm so glad he was patient and kind with me to teach me these things. And so with that, we are able to actually together be better neighbors. We're actually able to be better tools that God can use to build his kingdom. And a huge part of that is, I believe, welcoming the foreigner among us. So thank you guys. Oh, a couple questions for you. Um, first, you mentioned Sun Valley neighborhood. People are curious, what other neighborhoods have a lot of refugees in them? And is there a place we can go to figure out where they are throughout the city? Yes. And yes. So there's refugees all over. One of the reasons we resettled, kind of chose, and got to let us to Sun Valley is, like, African Community Center, Lutheran Family, there are a lot of refugees in East Denver, Aurora, and a lot of resources for them there and that we didn't know of a lot in West Denver kind of area. And so that's why we chose this part of, of town. Um, but I would say that there's refugees all over. Um, a lot of, of refugees and throughout the housing process, and this is something that ACC would be much better to answer, but they're, they're everywhere. Um, and, and part of the housing situation is some of them can get Section 8, um, which Section 8, for those of you know, you can really go anywhere. Um, and so, but I would just encourage you, if you're looking maybe for a bigger neighborhood where there's going to be a lot, you can ask ACC um, tonight. You, you could ask us, but I think they would probably know even better. Yeah. Um, this issue is, as you mentioned, your own personal journey. It's politically charged. We talk about immigration, refugees, a lot of images can pop up. Unfortunately, we're most often informed by the sound bites we hear in the media. Yeah. Um, how do we wrestle with that personally? If our own narrative has been is politically charged. We have um, certain hesitations around this for safety issues or, um, you know, love of comfort, whatever it is. Yeah. And then also, how do we help others work through those things and process? Uh, not, not as, hey, I've got this figured out. Let me, let me show yeah. you the way, but engage in a, in a kind way. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a really good question, a really hard question, because I think um, the first step of that, like I started with, is being honest, being honest with even ourselves. Um, I found that it's a lot easier for me to be bold and tell people my journey, which, which is my journey, and if you want to argue with it, it's kind of hard to. Um, and so to, to be honest with what you're going through, to be honest with where you stand in this, because I, I would almost venture to say that there's nobody in this room that 100% believes um, everything 
about immigration, refugees, um, uh, and has no fear about it. And so, so to be honest about that, and then to begin to let God work into that, and then that becomes maybe part of the the the, the, the initiation of the conversation is, hey, John, I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with this, um, and I'm not even really sure where I stand on this. Would you talk with me? Those kind of things, and, and it's just it's a lot less of a of a subtle blow on the head, and, and it's more of just a friendship kind of a conversation. Um, last one. So you mentioned a lot of ideas for the Hope Challenge. And I think it's easy for us to think individually what we can do. Mm-hmm. How does that translate into a, a small group for yeah. as a park? You know, a lot of our partnerships come through our gospel communities. Yeah. Um, what are some ideas of, of how that translates into a, a community setting, a, a setting, a group setting to get involved? Uh, that's a great idea. I think uh, there's great ways to partner and organize with, with organizations throughout the city. Um, you can talk to ACC, you can talk to Ben's in the back of the, at our table tonight. Um, we do an event called the Immigri- uh, Immersion Experience. Um, which is once a quarter, I think, um, is what we do where you just come. You, you learn a little bit about some of this kind of stuff, and then you actually go into Sun Valley and might play kickball, might have a meal, might do something and, and with people we've built relationships with that are our friends that, that are always happy to run and around and play kickball and those kinds of things, or eat. And so as, as a first step that a group could do together, um, there's, there's mentoring opportunities. Um, I know Lutheran Family and, and, and ACC have those opportunities. We're building one that's called Family to Family, um, which, again, is not an idea of a one-on-one, but it's a, a small group potentially or multiple families coming and partnering with a Somali family or an Ethiopian family and just kind of experiencing life in, in certain aspects. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there are some questions um, that weren't able to get answered up front, but all of our speakers and other people plugged in with these organizations are going to be in the back afterward. So I encourage you, if some of your questions didn't get answered or you didn't text them in and you, and you still have um, some, some areas where you're curious, find them afterward, and, and they'd love to process with you. Even if that turns into a cup of coffee, a, a lunch, they'd be happy to do it. Um, do encourage you guys, take a handful of minutes. We're a little over on time, and so I'm going to close this out. Um, but encourage you, if you have the time, stick around at your table and discuss that second set of questions And please be sure to uh, fill out the Hope Challenge. And he went through all the the instructions of it. Throw it in the box. Um, And like I said, the speakers are around afterward. But let me pray for us. And then you guys stick around, discuss for a while, and then we'll we'll get out. Father, thank you that you you sought us out uh, when we we didn't know what home looked like. Uh, We knew we were longing for it. We knew we ached for it. uh, But we didn't didn't know the rest that came uh, from knowing you. Uh, so thank you that you didn't, you didn't sit idly by, you, you weren't passive, you didn't ignore us, um, you, you certainly didn't shun us or, or throw us out, uh, but you engaged us where, where we had the, the greatest need. Uh, so may we see that, may we see your love, may we be compelled by that love, may that, that inform the way we engage uh, our neighbors and our coworkers, uh, even to, to seek out those that we wouldn't normally spend time with. Uh, call us out of areas where we, we find a, a sort of safety and a comfort. And, and may we, we delight in taking sacrifices you have for us. Uh, so help us. May we be motivated and driven by your love, a, a vision of what you've done for us. And, and may you transform this city, uh, even through the small mean, means of tonight in our conversations. Uh, so help us. Uh, we can't do none of this without your spirit working through your people. So please come and, and, and work again and again. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here.